Chapter Five of the Coxon Fund by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Larry Kaplan. I was doubtless often a nuisance to my friends in those years, but there were sacrifices I declined to make, and I never passed the hat to George Gravener. I never forgot our little discussion in Ebury Street, and I think it stuck in my throat to have to treat him to the avowal I had found so easy to Miss Anvoy. It had cost me nothing to confide to this charming girl, but it would have cost me much to confide to the friend of my youth that the character of the real gentleman wasn't an attribute of the man I took such pains for. Was this because I had already generalized to the point of perceiving that women are really the unfastidious sex? I knew at any rate that Gravener, already quite in view but still hungry and frugal, had naturally enough more ambition than charity. He had sharp aims for stray sovereigns, being in view most from the tall steeple of Clockborough. His immediate ambition was to occupy, en Louis soul, the field of vision of that smokily-seeing city, and all his movements and postures were calculated for the favoring angle. The movement of the hand as to the pocket had thus to alternate gracefully with the posture of the hand on the heart. He talked to Clockborough in short only less beguilingly than Frank Saltram talked to his electors, with a difference to our credit, however, that we had already voted, and that our candidate had no antagonist but himself. He had more than once been at Wimbledon. It was Mrs. Mulville's work, not mine, and by the time the claret was served had seen the god descend. He took more pains to swing his censer than I had expected, but on our way back to town he forestalled any little triumph I might have been so artless as to express by the observation that such a man was, a hundred times, a man to use and never a man to be used by. I remember that this neat remark humiliated me almost as much as if I virtually, in the fever of broken slumbers, I hadn't often made it myself. The difference was that on Gravener's part a force attached to it that could never attach to it on mine. He was able to use people. He had the machinery, and the irony of Saltram's being made showy at Clockborough came out to me when he said, as if he had no memory of our original talk, and the idea were quite fresh to him, I hate his type, you know, but I'll be hanged if I don't put some of those things in. I can find a place for them. We might even find a place for the fellow himself. I myself should have had some fear, not... I need scarcely say for the things themselves, but for some other things very near them, in fine for the rest of my eloquence. Later on I could see that the oracle of Wimbledon was not in this case so appropriate as he would have been had the polities of the gods only coincided more exactly with those of the party. There was a distinct moment when, without saying anything more definite to me, Gravener entertained the idea of annexing Mr. Saltram. Such a project was delusive for the discovery of analogies between his body of doctrine and that press from headquarters upon Clockborough, the bottling, in a word, of the air of those lungs for convenient public uncorking and corn exchanges, was an experiment for which no one had the leisure. The only thing would have been to carry him massively about, paid, caged, clipped, to turn him on for a particular occasion in a particular channel. Frank Saltram's channel, however, was essentially not calculable, and there was no knowing what disastrous floods might have ensued. 
For what there would have been to do, the Empire, the great newspaper, was there to look to. But it was no new misfortune that there were delicate situations in which the Empire broke down. In fine, there was an instinctive apprehension that a clever young journalist, commissioned to report on Mr. Saltram, might never come back from the errand. No one knew better than George Gravener that that was a time when prompt returns counted double. If he therefore found our friend an exasperating waste of orthodoxy, it was because of his being, as he said, poor Gravener up in the clouds, not because he was down in the dust. The man would have been, just as he was, a real enough gentleman if he could have helped to put in a real gentleman. Gravener's great objection to the actual member was that he was not one. Lady Coxon had a fine old house, a house with grounds at Clockborough, which she had let. But after she returned from abroad, I learned from Mrs. Saltram that the lease had fallen in and that she had gone down to resume possession. I could see the faded red livery, the big square shoulders, the high wall garden of this decent abode. As the rumble of dissolution grew louder, the suitor would have pressed his suit, and I found myself hoping that the politics of the late mayor's widow wouldn't be such as to admonish her to ask him to dinner. Perhaps, indeed, I went so far as to pray. They would naturally form a bar to any contact. I tried to focus the many-button page in the daily airing, as he perhaps even pushed the bath-chair over somebody's toes. I was destined to hear, none the less, through Mrs. Saltram, who, I afterwards learned, was in correspondence with Lady Coxon's housekeeper, that Gravener was known to have spoken of the habitation I had in my eye as the pleasantest thing in Clockborough. On his part, I was sure, this was the voice not of envy, but of experience. The vivid scene was now peopled, and I could see him in the old-time garden with Miss Anvoy, who would be certain, and very justly, to think him good-looking. It would be too much to describe myself as troubled by this play of surmise, but I occur to remember the relief, singular enough, of feeling it suddenly brushed away by an annoyance really much greater, an annoyance the result of its happening to come over me about that time with a rush that I was simply ashamed of Frank Saltram. There were limits, after all, and my mark at last had been reached. I had my disgust, if I may allow myself today such an expression, but this was a supreme revolt. Certain things cleared up in my mind, certain values stood out. It was all very well to have an unfortunate temperament. There was nothing so unfortunate as to have, for practical purposes, nothing else. I avoided George Gravener at this moment, and reflected that at such a time I should do so most effectually by leaving England. I wanted to forget Frank Saltram. That was all. I didn't want to do anything in the world to him but that. Indignation had withered on the stalk and I felt that one could pity him as much as one ought only by never thinking of him again. It wasn't for anything he had done to me. It was for what he had done to the Mulvilles. Adelaide cried about it for a week, and her husband, profiting by the example so signally given him of the fatal effect of a want of character, left the letter, the drop too much, unanswered. The letter, an incredible one, addressed by Saltron to Wimbledon during a stay with the Pudneys at Ramsgate, was the central feature of the incident, which, however, had many features, each more painful than whichever other we compared it with. The Pudneys had behaved shockingly, but that was no excuse. Base ingratitude, gross indecency, 
One had one's choice only of such formulas as that the more they fitted, the less they gave one rest. These are dead aches now, and I am under no obligation, thank heaven, to be definite about the business. There are things which, if I had had to tell them, well, would have stopped me off here altogether. I went abroad for the general election, and if I don't know how much, on the continent I forgot, at least, how much I missed him. At a distance, in a foreign land, ignoring, abjuring, unlearning him, I discovered what he had done for me. I owed him, oh, unmistakably, certain noble conceptions. I had lighted my little taper at his smoky lamp, and lo, it continued to twinkle. But the light it gave me just showed me how much more I wanted. I was pursued, of course, by letters from Mrs. Saltram, which I didn't scruple not to read, though quite aware her embarrassments couldn't but be now of the gravest. I sacrificed the propriety by simply putting them away. And this is how, one day, as my absence drew to an end, my eye, while I rummaged in my desk for another paper, was caught by a name on a leaf that had detached itself from the packet. The allusion was to Miss Anvoy, who, it appeared, was engaged to be married to Mr. George Gravener, and the news was two months old. A direct question of Mrs. Saltram's had thus remained unanswered. She had inquired of me, in a postscript, what sort of man this aspirant to such a hand might be. The great other fact about him, just then, was that he had been triumphantly returned for Clockborough in the interest of the party that had swept the country, so that I might easily have referred Mrs. Saltram to the journals of the day. Yet when I at last wrote her that I was coming home and would discharge my accumulated burden by seeing her, I but remarked in regard to her question that she must really put it to Miss Anvoy. End of chapter 5